Hello, this is Elizabeth Copeland, and today's podcast for Grief Burst is with Floy Monat, who was one of the contributors to Just a Little More Time. Floy has written another full bo- full-length book uh, entitled Be Brave, A Wife's Journey Through Caregiving. Thank you, Floy, for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. With Grief Dialogues, our, our motto is, out of grief comes art. And in this case, your art is writing. Could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write about your experience? Well, initially, the thought I had was that other caregivers probably felt as I felt, that they were afraid, they were overwhelmed, they were sad, uh, any number of adjectives. And I thought I would like to give them the gift of my experience and if I could uh, just make them feel a little less alone. Uh, That's what I thought when I started writing. But towards the end, I began to realize that through the writing of the book, I'd actually processed a lot of my grief and kind of, if you will, not exactly made sense of my story, but kind of figured out what had happened to us and the the evolution that both of us had gone through, my husband Chuck and myself, uh, during the course of the six years I was his caregiver, and put it in the context of our 40-year marriage. So all that was quite a learning experience for me. Mm. Six years of caregiving is a long time. I was my mother's caretaker for four years when she was suffering from Parkinson's, and, and I had lots of help. Uh, I think that your book is a real tribute to your love, your love for Chuck and Chuck's love for you and, and your family. I'd like you to read a chapter from Be Brave. In fact, it's titled The Power of Love. I think the readers would really enjoy this. Yes, I will read this. Um, it, it's uh, chapter 37 in my book, so it's towards the end of the book, towards the end of those six years. And I should say that at that time, Chuck was living in a nursing home. Actually, he lived in a nursing home for the full six years. I was his caregiver. He had a debilitating stroke, and when he didn't seem to recover from that stroke, uh, we pursued the uh, you know medical options we had and had more testing done by neurologists who determined that he was suffering from Lewy body dementia. So at that point, we knew we had a progressive illness, and I just was not going to be able to take care of him at home. But towards the end of those six years, uh, I wrote this story called The Power of Love, as you said. Kate, the sister of our New Zealand son, James, and her husband, Pete, were making plans for a North American trip and asked if they could visit us in September 2008. We had met Kate and Pete at James and Barbara's wedding, and they were an important part of our international family. Of course, I said yes to their request and looked forward to hosting them at my condo. On the Saturday they arrived, I walked over to the ferry terminal to greet them. They intended to spend Sunday and Monday touring Seattle and then devote the last day of their visit to Chuck. We planned to take him out to lunch and for a drive. On Monday, Chuck was too disoriented to have a spa bath, and on Tuesday morning he, wasn't, he was the worst I'd ever seen him, curled up in bed, seemingly not knowing who I was, maybe not even who he was. I was terribly disappointed, and although I understood 
the Lewy body dementia roller coaster, I was scared that his condition might mean it was time for hospice. I came back home and broke the news to Kate and Pete, but they wanted to visit Chuck anyway. The three of us walked into Chuck's room around lunchtime. His aides had put him in his wheelchair, but Chuck was slumped over with his eyes closed and his mouth open. Seeing him like that, Kate and Pete turned around and walked back out, needing a moment to regroup. When they returned, Kate asked me if she could talk to Chuck. The earnestness in her brown eyes convinced me to say yes, though I doubted he would understand a word she said. Wearing a flowered skirt and short-sleeved black blouse, Kate stood by Chuck's wheelchair and stroked his arm. She spent the next several minutes quietly talking to him in her lovely Kiwi accent. She told him about every member of her family, including James, who, having lost Barbara to breast cancer 11 years ago, had found his new love, Jenny. He'd quit his stressful job as a meteorologist and was the happiest he'd been in years. Kate spoke about her mother, Gladys, whom Chuck adored, and related stories people had told at Gladys's memorial service the previous spring. There was the story of the distressed young woman with two small children, whom Gladys spotted in a bus station. Gladys walked over to this stranger and asked if she could help, and the young mother, whose face was bruised, broke down and admitted that she was fleeing her abusive husband. She wanted to go to her mother's house in Masterton, but that was far away, and she had no money. Gladys took them home and fed them. She gave them $500 for travel expenses and sent them off. Over the next few years, envelopes arrived from Masterton containing small sums of money until the $500 Gladys thought she'd never see again was repaid. In her will, Gladys left the woman $1,000. As Kate spoke, Chuck's eyes flickered, then opened, and he began to track her. Kate told of James's high school friend, Reggie, a poor Maori boy whose mother had died and whose father was in prison. Twice, Gladys had flown with Reggie to the Maori Carving School in Rotorua for an interview. Subsequently, he'd received a two-year scholarship and is now considered one of New Zealand's master carvers. At this, Chuck's eyes brimmed with tears. Wide-eyed now, Chuck looked at Kate and said, quite clearly, and how is Spencer, referring to James's eldest child. And she told him that Spencer had a good job in Christchurch and that next year he'd be getting married to a lovely woman called Soon May. So Kate talked Chuck back from the darkness, and she did it by the power of her love. It was pretty much like witnessing a miracle. Wow. Thanks so much, Flory, for reading that part. I know when I read your book, this, this particular chapter really jumped out at me. My father-in-law is in hospice, and he has Alzheimer's, and he goes in and out. And just hearing every once in a while a story that will come out that just comes to him that is based in reality um, mm -hmm. is so enlightening when he, when he talks. It's enlightening about who he is as a person because all the defenses are down. He's not the uh, patriarch of a big family, a uh, big successful family. He's just, 
he's just Bob. Yeah. And the stories he tells when he's uh, lucid, even for a few minutes, are quite heartwarming. Uh, when you, I know why you wrote the book, but when you write some very powerful pieces, especially like this chapter, how did it make you feel? Well, I suppose it was a catharsis of sort uh, the first time through. I kind of had the approach that I would write the story, not chronologically, but whatever was in my heart that day. And so I kind of followed my emotions in terms of what I wrote, and then I was faced with the task later of putting it all together into a coherent whole. Um, but certainly uh, I cried a lot during the writing of the book, and... I mentioned to some other people about keeping a tear cup. Uh, it's an ancient concept, having a small cup on your table, and when you cry, you put the, those tears into the cup, and they were considered sacred tears by ancient peoples, uh, particularly in the Middle East area. So I have my little tear cup when I do this type of writing. I'm not sure I'll ever do writing that's quite as emotional as this, um, but it seemed to be appropriate for that particular project. Right. And what have people who have read the book said to you? I know you've had at least one reading and so forth. Uh, what kind of feedback are people giving you about the book? Well, the feedback I'm getting from caregivers is that um, it was honest, and it had to be honest, or caregivers wouldn't wouldn't believe it. I mean, if I just said, oh, yeah, it was really a piece of cake, I just waltzed through this caregiving stuff, uh, nobody would want to read about that if they'd been a caregiver because they know it wasn't true. So I'm, I, I, it's a warts and all picture of caregiving. But also I think in the long run, I would consider it a love story, not a story of illness. Um, mm. So the feedback's been strong. I know people said that at the reading. They were really uh, enthralled yeah, by... Yeah, and I think a lot of people uh, who are pushing on towards their senior years, let's mm. say, might anticipate being a caregiver. So they're quite fascinated by the story mm. and what it might what it might mean for them. Not that they're going to have the same experience, but just people think about those things as they age. Right. Um, who what what what's my story gonna be? And mm -hmm. this this was our story. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to tell it and I had a great deal of satisfaction in knowing that the story is now out there and my children and grandchildren and mm other people will be able to read it. It's uh, yeah, great, greatly satisfying. So was it the power of sharing the story that uh, encouraged you to publish it, or did you have something else in mind? What was your end goal of actually publishing the book instead of making it your journal? Mm. Yes, I think sharing it, particularly with caregivers, but just having it, having it down. Uh, when it was happening, it was kind of a private affair, maybe because we were private people, and I just had the sense that nobody really knew what was going on, but it was important for people to know that this is what happened, and we went through it, and it wasn't ultimately a tragedy. It was just what happens. Mm -hmm. People fall in love, and then they have to care for one another as they age and get sick, and it's just part of the whole experience of being alive and being a human being, and it's not going to always be easy, and there will be grief and sadness, but that doesn't mean that you're incapacitated by it. It means you just 
you just get up every day and do what you need to do, and if you keep doing that, eventually it will it will play out the way it's supposed to play out. Great. I love what you just said. Um, not everything's a tragedy. Uh, there are difficult times, uh, and clearly your love for each other really shows through this book. Mm -hmm. And uh, as, as a former caregiver myself, and now an occasional caregiver, uh, I really did find a lot of, of uh, sort of uh, examples of how to handle very difficult situations in this book. Like you said, mm -hmm. everybody's experience is different, but yeah. these ideas are really spot on. The details are different, but the experience, I think, is the same for everyone. It's a sort of a universal experience of love and loss and grieving. Right, right. And, uh, Excellent One time point. I was actually pushing Chuck's wheelchair into my condo, and it's, I, was on, I live on the second floor, and there were some people standing on the walkway on the floor above me saying like, oh, isn't that a tragedy? They were looking at us and mm -hmm. saying, isn't that a tragedy? And my first thought was, that just makes it so much harder if I'm going to think of this as a tragedy. It is just what we're doing right now at this point in our lives, mm -hmm. and I'd rather not label it. Right. Oh, that's powerful in and of itself, because labeling it, I don't know. For me, if I label something, I feel stuck. And, exactly. uh, yeah, that's really difficult. Uh, I just want to re read what Rebecca Wells, who's a New York Times bestselling author of Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood and a former Bainbridge Island resident, wrote about the book. She describes it as a book of compassion, faith, and generosity. Flory helps us understand the complex mixture of heartache and letting go. And I think that really says that about the book. Thank you. I encourage everyone to get a copy and read it, share it, enjoy it.